I want you to imagine what battlefields looked like during the period of the Revolutionary War. British and colonial troops would, in straight lines, line up across from one another. The weapon of choice, as they took aim at one another's enemy, stationed no more than 100 yards away, was the Brown Bess Musket. It had a 42-inch long barrel and a bayonet on its end. The, the truth is, these weapons were not terribly accurate. On average, soldiers would fire three to four shots a minute, hoping that one of their bullets would hit its intended targets. Warfare throughout the Revolutionary War was organized, but its form of organization was filled with peril. Things, of course, changed at the outset of the Civil War, 80 years later. While linear formations were still utilized, what became a more dominant form of organization for troops revolved around trenches. Why place soldiers in vulnerable position directly across from one another when trenches would allow soldiers to find protection while firing upon their enemy? Weapons changed as well. Rifles utilized during the Civil War were capable of firing around and hitting a target up to a thousand yards away. That's a significant improvement over the rounds fired by muskets. Additionally, the weapons of the Civil War were repeaters. These allowed a soldier to fire multiple bullets prior to reloading. Repeaters were capable of allowing for seven shots every 30 seconds. And then the organization of war changed again. The onset of World War I brought with it new and deadly weapons. While trenches remained a prominent approach, the addition of machine guns, flamethrowers, poison gas, aircraft, tanks, along with a powerful navy meant death and death in abundance. Allow me to give you a comparison. The death toll of the Civil War was staggering. Perhaps you'll recall that during the Civil War, some 620,000 soldiers died. So a lot of people, but not comparatively. Do you happen to remember the death toll from World War I? It stood at 8.5 million soldiers. What we're saying is that by World War I, war was becoming both more organized and more deadly. This, of course, became evident with the onset of World War II. During the Second World War, air power became more prominent. The B-17, also known as the Flying Fortress, was added to the Allies' arsenal. The plane was capable of flying at speeds of up to 287 miles per hour while carrying up to 4,000 pounds of bombs. Of course, when I say the word bomb, you can't help but think of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The first Japanese city witnessed the death of 80,000 in the second, 70,000. Japanese forces recognizing the potential long-term effects of remaining in the war surrendered following the drop of the second atomic bomb on Nagasaki. Warfare had forever changed. The way navies and air units, ground units were organized were entirely different. From even the First World War, war was organized and oh so deadly. And it would evolve again. Some of you remember well the difficulties experienced by U.S. forces in the war that took place in Vietnam. Stifling U.S. troops were limiting rules of engagement imposed upon by troops, added to an approach to warfare that the U.S. had never experienced, at least not on such a large scale. It was called guerrilla warfare. Long gone were the days where 
armies lined up in straight lines across from one another. Guerrilla warfare focused on ambushes, along with hit-and-run tactics. Vietnamese troops utilized underground tunnels along with the terrain of swamps and forests to remain hidden from U.S. forces. The U.S. rightfully claimed superior weaponry and troops. However, these made no difference in a battle that had taken on a new form of organization. One military history describes it this way. The writer suggests that fighting the Vietnamese was like fighting a shadow. One would swing not knowing if their blow ever connected. Despite weaponry inclusive of M16 rifles, AK-47s, M60 machine guns, napalm, cluster bombs, booby traps, the U.S. struggled. War was changing, and it still is. It seems hard to imagine a soldier sitting in an office in Chicago while commanding a live weapon flying in airspace over Afghanistan. But, but that's exactly the case. The development of drones, tomahawk missiles, and space weapons make it possible to inflict significant damage on enemy forces without ever leaving home. Today, war can be fought from afar. A dictator as far away as North Korea could, on a whim, give an order and an intercontinental missile launched, having the capacity of striking a target in Los Angeles within, get this, 30 minutes. Warfare has become reorganized. But what about spiritual warfare? Is it organized? Does it happen in a somewhat random way? What I've discovered is the fact that many Christians are unsure about the organization of warfare in the spiritual dimension. Equally, there seems to be some uncertainty about how churches ought to organize for warfare. The truth is, many churches are not organized around the notion that we're in a spiritual battle at all. It's not that they're not busy with activities. Hand me a church's newsletter or connect me to its website and there it is, busyness. But sort through all of the busyness and ask yourself a question. How much of this church's busyness is about the business of souls? Does this church seem to be organized for battle? I think that one would be surprised at how often the answer to that question is simply no, it is not. I want to thank you for joining me today for this edition of God-Sized Living. It's my, my hope today to just rejoin Daniel in chapter 10 of his narrative. It's here that we meet an interesting character who's referred to simply as the prince of the kingdom of Persia. The question I want to raise today is, who, who is he? Or is he a he? Is this a person or a spiritual entity? And what does his or its presence have to teach us about the organization of warfare in Jesus' battle for souls? Let me tell you, one of the things that really got me thinking about this topic was our country's most recent celebration of Martin Luther King Day and how this civil rights leader contrasts so sharply with what I believe we see happen in our culture today. Make no mistake about it, when Martin Luther King entered into a prominent role in the civil rights movement, he knew that he was entering into a battle, a big one. That's not my intention here to bog us down with a lot of detail about civil rights and the movement, but remember with me that the civil rights movement had its origin in the Reconstruction Amendments to the U.S. Constitution following the Civil War. It's contended that while the Civil War did in fact lead to the abolition of slavery in the 1860s, 
what took its slavery's place were laws that supported racial segregation, discrimination, and the disenfranchisement of black people. Seeking to change these laws entailed a battle and battle plans. What Martin Luther King knew is that unless he organized and then mobilized a community of like-minded people, both people of color and white people, the battle would be lost. Enter two concepts. Number one, the gospel. Number two, community organization. As I look back at the civil rights movement from 1954 to 1968, I don't think there's any way to miss the significance assigned by Martin Luther King to the gospel of Jesus Christ as the foundation upon which the movement had to be built were it to have any hope of success. Martin Luther King believed that it was his goal not to set black people free from laws, this was secondary, but to set white people, along with some people of color, free from hatred, from discrimination, from racial bias. What King appealed to was the gospel of Jesus, which proclaims all men equal in God's sight. His question, can we construct a system that might allow for laws and practices that uphold and all men equal under the gospel belief? In order to achieve his gospel, MLK began to employ a process simply known as community organizing. Now, I'm going to expose my own ignorance here. A number of years ago, a presidential elec election took place in our country involving a young candidate who was best known for their work as a community organizer in the Chicago area. I, I remember hearing about this candidate and thinking to myself, huh, community organizer. You know, you know what I thought? I thought, well, maybe that, that's referring to someone who organizes picnics or potluck dinners in their neighborhood. I remember thinking to myself, how in the world does a candidate move from potlucks to president? What I didn't understand was the whole of what community organizing is, along with the different forms thereof. But believe me, when I tell you that community organizing and community organizers are not about potluck dinners, not, not at all. Community organizing is about a highly developed process by which leaders bring community members together around a common need or desire for change. Techniques are then developed to organize a community to perform acts and initiatives designed to support the commonly held call for change. Events are planned and carried out. Events and actions are evaluated and iterated to increase effectivity. Skills are taught and practiced. In short, an army is created, a highly organized army that is trained and employed. Community organizing is warfare. Now, here's a distinction. As one gets up to the 50,000 foot level, you can discern that there are really two very different forms of community organizing. The one that MLK utilized under a gospel foundation might be called nonviolent organizing in contrast to conflict-oriented or even violent organizing. Some time ago, I read a book that introduced me to the world of conflict-oriented or violent organizing. I don't know if the name Saul Alinsky is familiar to you or not, but in the early 1970s, he wrote a book that defines organizing to this day, the essence of violent community organization. A form of organization, by the way, that would make Martin Luther King turn over in his grave. If you've never read it, the title of Alinsky's book is, 
quote, rules for radicals, end quote. The book serves as a primer toward preparing those who want to bring about change. While there's no way to review Alinsky's entire work here, that's not my purpose, I do want to lift up what he calls rule number three. Here it is. Quote, in war, the end justifies any means, end quote, including violent ones. I have to tell you that as I reflect upon so many of the events that make their way onto our evening news in America, I can see Alinsky's hand at work. Oh, by the way, he, Alinsky, was once asked if he thought that he was going to heaven. Here he replied, I hope not. I believe that I'd get along a lot better with those in hell. I don't think he had any faith. But I do. There has been so much violence in our culture. On the part of groups of people who have organized to defund police departments, seek out free education at universities, affect climate change, topple those who are in power in government. Saul Alinsky may have died in 1972, but he is alive and well in our culture today. A culture in which community organizers continue to organize groups of individuals to do war. Groups that are organized and effective. But is the church. Enter Daniel chapter 10. When we left Daniel last week in verse 10 of chapter 10, the Lord was dancing over him. Do you remember? Daniel had experienced an ecstasy in which he sees Jesus in all of his majesty and falls like a dead man before him. I always think about this, that on the one hand, we want to look at Jesus and see the gentle shepherd who scoops us up in his arms. On the other hand, to look at Jesus in all of his glory is, in a word, terrifying. In his presence, we hear the voice of the law accuse us, telling us, you do not belong here. You cannot stand before this holy one. There's a part of us that sees Jesus in his majesty, and really, we want to run. But what does he do? He dances over us. He proclaims us his own. He calls us his beloved ones, and he lifts us up. And this is what Daniel has experienced. Jesus has just lifted him up. Jesus wants Daniel to know you do not need to be afraid. I love these words in in our scripture today. Uh, Allow me to read verses 12 to 13. This is Daniel chapter 10. Lord, we just pray that you give us insight into these words. Amen. Quote, then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, end quote. I want you to get a good sense of what's happening here, because I, I do believe that it has a lot to do with what it means to recognize God's organization for spiritual warfare. As Jesus speaks to Daniel here, his first intent is to comfort him. He wants Daniel, as much as he wants you and me, to know that when we pray to him, he always hears us and he always responds. This is important. If we could have asked Daniel prior to this moment, Daniel, has God even heard your prayers? Daniel might answer, I don't know. You know why? Too too much of the time, we operate on a subjective plane. We operate according to what we see and experience. And because we do, there are many times when it does not seem like 
God hears our prayers, when in fact he always does and he always responds. It's important to ask ourselves the question, am I operating on a subjective plane or an objective one? It's when we live objectively and according to what the word teaches us that we're able by faith to see Jesus even in the most difficult of circumstances, even when we're not able to subjectively feel his presence. Daniel, Jesus is saying, I've heard your prayer, and because I have, I am here. Now, Jesus goes on. He wants Daniel to know more about the war for souls that's being fought in the heavenly realm. So what does he tell Daniel? Daniel, for 21 days, I've been squaring off with the prince of Persia. What does that mean? Two quick points here. Number one, the number utilized here, 21 days, is eschatological. That means it's symbolic and it's significant. What is 21? It's the variable of seven times three, both seven and three being theologically significant. Three, the number for the Trinity, seven, the number for Jesus. What Jesus is telling Daniel is there's more going on than meets the eye. I, Jesus, am present as a Trinity. Remember that the whole of the Trinity is always present with each part. You cannot add the Father present and the Son absent or vice versa. Where one person is present, so are all three. So I, Jesus, have been doing battle with, think spiritual warfare, the prince of Persia. Most significant. Here's the most significant question I'm going to ask today. Who, who is the prince of Persia? Listen to this. Because Jesus is talking to Daniel about what is happening in the spiritual realm, we know that this term, prince of Persia, refers not to a person, but an angel. I want to let that sink in for a minute. What Jesus is saying is, Daniel, there's a war going on for souls. And in this war, at a level unseen by human eyes, I am fighting and I am fighting against angels, fallen angels. We call them demons. And not only demons, but ones that are highly organized. They operate as an army that has a battle plan. Think about this with me. Jesus is able to tell Daniel that the specific fallen angel with whom he's doing battle has charge over Persia, specifically Persia. Now, I want to get into this organization with you a bit more in a detail level in our next podcast. But for today, here's what I want you to see. Organization. I believe that too often we picture Satan and his ally demons as operating in kind of a, ra a random fashion, as though they move across the earth and maybe at times come into contact with me or my, my, my family. We think, we think the movements of Satan are, are random. Listen, nothing could be further from the truth. Here's the truth. When it comes to spiritual warfare, there are two armies, God's and Satan's. And guess what? Both are highly organized around one thing, souls. God wants to save them. Our enemy wants to condemn them. Again, next week, I'll get deeper into the organization of angel armies. But for today, I believe that this scripture raises a significant question about me. What is my life organized around? Think about this. Organizers organize their armies, communities of people around a specific need for desired change. Then they work toward equipping and rehearsing and carrying out highly intentional initiatives designed to play a role in accomplishing the desired change. So back to my question. If I were to look at your life, would I find any evidence in it toward being able to say that this person, that their very being are moving about one key goal, souls, bringing people out of darkness and into his light. 
bringing people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And absolutely, I could ask the same thing of the church that you might be a part of. I want you to hear me today. It's not my goal to simply dump a lot of law on anyone listening to this podcast. That's not helpful. At the same time, here is where I do want to leave us today. We'll pick back up on this theme next week. I believe this scripture leads us towards two God-sized questions. Here they are. Number one, if I were to take honest inventory of my life today, how would I answer this question? I want you to think about this. The number one thing that my life is organized around right now is what? How would you fill in the blank? The number one thing my life is organized around right now is what? Question two, again, based upon an honest inventory of my life today, would you say that on a scale of one to 10, your specific focus on souls is a one, a five, an eight, a 10? Where would you put your focus? Next week, we'll continue what it means to look at organization. We'll get into at least a bit the organization that exists in the spiritual world around what it means to pursue souls for eternity. What I'm hoping to do more than anything else is to look at what it might mean for each of us to become more intentionally organized, for my life to become more intentionally organized around what it means to join Jesus in his battle for souls for eternity. In fact, I'm already looking forward to thinking about this with you next week. Well, that's it for this week. Again, I want to thank you so much for joining me and listening. I uh, continue to lift you and your family up in prayer. Uh, I certainly am so thankful for the prayers that come back my direction. Until next week, I pray that you have a God-sized week.